Hello boys and girls and welcome to episode 238 of the Motorcycle Men podcast and I have got another wonderful interview for your listening pleasure. But before we begin the interview, as always, I have to tell you about our sponsors. And the Motorcycle Men is brought to you by Scorpion Helmets. For the last 15 years, Scorpion EXO has been dedicated to offering high-quality, innovative motorcycle helmets and technical apparel at an incredible value to ensure that each and every Scorpion EXO helmet and garment will surpass user expectations. To learn more, you go over to scorpionusa.com and of course shinko tires whether if you're riding some sort of sport bike some scooter an off-road bike dual sport a cruiser even harley davidson in indian doesn't matter shinko tire has a tire to suit your needs and your riding style without breaking your bank account so if it's time for tires for your bike think of shinko that's right go over to shinko tire usa and make sure you tell them that the motorcycle men podcast sent you on over Hey, Wild Ass Seats. Never heard of these guys? Well, you're going to now. Why ride in pain when you can ride in absolute comfort with the help of a Wild Ass Seat Cushion? Your back will thank you and you'll enjoy mile after mile of cruising comfort no matter what type of motorcycle you ride. The cushion eliminates painful pressure points and promotes blood circulation while utilizing adjustable interconnected air cells which conform to the rider's shape regardless of weight or seating position. So, go to wildass.com and order today. Make sure you tell them that the Motorcycle Men sent you. They'll take care of you over there. And, of course, the Motorcycle Men is supporting David's Dream and Believe Cancer Foundation. If you would like to help out and be a part of something that actually makes a difference, donate today to David's Dream and Believe Cancer Foundation. Go to davidsdreamandbelieve.org to donate. Links will also be in the show notes and, of course, on our links page. And the Gold Star Ride Foundation, helping the families of fallen soldiers and making a difference in the lives of those left behind. If you'd like to be a part of a great cause and get some great heartfelt miles in, go over to goldstarride.org and learn how you can participate in the next Gold Star Ride. Now, from time to time, you have heard me talk about, you've heard me talk about it all the time, tobacco motorwear. Tobacco is known for making the best-looking riding jeans in the world. That's because they start with premium fabrics like selvage denim and canvas, and then they add those protective elements like comfortable anti-abrasion linings and armor. While other brands might look like a pair of saggy dad jeans, tobacco, on the other hand, are so stylish that you're going to want to wear them every time you're on your bike and even when you aren't riding your bike. With multiple fits and styles of protective jeans for men and women, you're guaranteed to find something that matches your style. Tobacco Motorwear also makes jackets and vests and riding shirts. And you've heard me say it before. I love my California riding shirt and my tobacco riding jeans. And I wear them every ride. I just won't ride without them. Not only that, every time I wear them, somebody asks me about them. And I've even got these new Roper gloves that they're producing. And they are absolutely amazing. Extremely comfortable, soft, wonderful leather. And breathable, too, so you're not going to sweat your hands off when you wear these. Tobacco believes in the safest gear is the gear you will actually wear. That's why they make products that look good and protect you while you are riding. Not only are tobaccos made to last, 
They're also made right here in the USA. So there's no need to sacrifice safety for style or vice versa. So go check out TobaccoMotorWear.com. That's TobaccoMotorWear.com. And our listeners will get, get a load of this, our listeners get 10% off when you order and use that coupon code MOTOMEN. So get over there and get yourself some tobacco motorwear. All right, now, uh, here on the podcast, I have interviewed a lot of different guests, and we talked about a lot of different roads and riding on specific roads, or it doesn't matter what kind of road they've ridden on, but it's always wonderful. And, and time to time, I've also interviewed people, who, and we talked about Route 66, and most recently you heard me uh, interview uh, a guest, and we talked about Historic Route 20. And there's many other great roads in our nation that uh, we've talked about on this podcast. One such great road, however, rarely gets a mention. And one I didn't even know about until I listened to the audiobook Welcome to Metropolis by my guest today, Christopher Koch. This wonderful road follows the great Mississippi River from the, all the way up north all the way to the Gulf Coast. Aside from the amazing stories he tells in the book... Chris also shared his thoughts and what he learned about the route, what he learned about Superman, what he learned about motorcycling, and himself on this long, very cold journey. So enjoy this interview. Good evening, boys and girls, and welcome to the Motorcycle Men Podcast. We are here in the V-Twin Cafe, and joining me tonight to tell us all about his trip not too long ago, Christopher Koch. Chris, how are you doing, sir? I am doing very well, Ted. Thank you so much for having me on. Great. Where are you located? I am coming to you from Minneapolis, Minnesota this evening. Oh, a nice warm state. Very good. Got a little snow on the ground, do you? Uh, we've got a little bit, but we um, the big news here is that we're supposed to drop down into the negative temperatures tomorrow. So it, it's a joy of uh, living up north. Excellent motorcycle riding weather. So, Chris, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your motorcycle self and what you do or did? Sure. Um, as far as like my motorcycle self, I've been riding since I was 15 years old. You know, I, I learned how to ride a motorcycle before I could drive a car. Cool. And now, what's that? That's cool. Yeah. Um, and and now, you know, I, I look back and, and it's, it's been over 30 years now that I've been on a motorcycle in one capacity or another. And, and, and I've taken time. You know, there, there was that period there in my 20s when I was a young father or whatever. I didn't ride very much. Um, I got divorced eight years ago, picked up the pace again. But no, I've been on a motorcycle for decades now. Isn't and, that scary? Uh, I'm uh, yeah, it, it, that, but that. that's the, that's the joy of it. Yeah, right? of course. Yeah. And, uh, I'm currently riding, uh, the same bike I took down the great river road. I've got a, uh, uh, a Cowie 1400 concourse. It's a sport touring bike. Yes. And, uh, it's paid off now. So nothing better I than might that. just ride it until it dies. <laughs> of course. So now tell us about your book. Welcome to Metropolis. When did you ride yeah. this? Uh, this was the this was the fall winter of, of 2014. It was the middle of November 2014. So actually, it's it's been a little bit, but uh, it was dumb. You know, there, there a lot of the book recounts just bad decisions I made, probably starting with with leaving my house and driving down my driveway. Um, I took off uh, on a Wednesday morning just ahead of some really bad weather 
And I didn't know I was doing that. I, I, I'm a guy who took off on a nine day motorcycle trip without checking the forecast. And I didn't have proper gear. And I froze my ass off all the way down the river. And I, I can expand on that. But that, that's a big part of the story is me just freezing. Yeah, we're going to talk about that because I have some experience with that as well. Uh, now, in the beginning, uh, when you were first planning this trip, uh, first I want you to know, I listened to the audiobook twice. Thank Cause, you. Because I, I listened to it the first time and I, I really enjoyed it. And then you know, a few weeks later after that, I went like, you know, I, I need to hear it again. Because I'm not really sure I understood exactly why he did some of the things he did. Uh, so I had to go back and listen to it again. But in the very beginning, when you were planning this, you had a bit of indecision as to where you were going to go. Well, you're generous to say that I planned it, Ted. Right. Well. Um, <laughs> I got to tell you what happened. So I, I got it in my head, and I, and I talk about this a little bit in the book. There was a period of time, I was living in this small town, I had been living there about 20 years, and I started reading the obituaries every week in the newspaper. Oh, that's always I read them one reading. week. Right. I, I read them one week, and you're, you're reading the stories of these regular people, and, and you know they'll say, well, so-and-so liked to play cards, or she liked to knit, or he owned a restaurant. And um, but, but as you go through these obituaries, you start fleshing out people who had interesting... Uh, and, and worthwhile lives. And, and I started to get this feeling like I wasn't doing anything very interesting. And so I, I, I had this gathering desire to take a trip of some kind to, to do, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to climb Mount Everest. I'm not going to take a submarine to the bottom of the ocean. So I wanted something that I could do that would be mildly challenging. Right. So I, I started thinking about this and a cross country motorcycle trip solo uh, was, was what I set upon. Yes. And, and I, I started, you know, I, I'm, a tra I'm a self-employed tradesman, so I can't go uh, in the summer months. You know, we're seasonal up here in Minnesota. I, I'm very busy. When the weather's nice, I'm busy. So I'm kind of forced to go when the weather's bad. And so one afternoon, it, again, this is fall. It's the beginning of November. Uh, I got, you know, I finished up work a little early and I came back to my office and I said, if I don't start planning this thing, it's never going to happen. You know, exactly. I got to come up with an actual plan. Choose a route. You look at it, look at the calendar. And so this is, I'm not kidding you, Ted, this is a, this is like a Thursday afternoon and I pull up my computer. I'm sitting across the desk from my sister who uh, is my office manager. I call her my assistant. So I'm sitting across. I like that. The, <laughs> thanks. Uh, she's, she, I couldn't do anything without her, frankly. Uh, anybody who, who is in the small business knows that the lady in the office runs everything. Yeah, right. Um, so I'm sitting there across the desk from her. And, and I'm thinking that I'm going to do this trip next year. You know, I, I'm not thinking I'm going to do it next week. So I go to the Old Farmer's Almanac website, and I start looking yeah. at weather patterns in, in different places. And, uh, you know, I, I'm looking at the – and I guess I, it's a whole other story how I decided on the GRR, but I'm looking at the Old Farmer's Almanac, and November is not much different from March, which is kind of when I was thinking about going, uh, you know, just looking at the average temperatures. And so I – well, the difference yeah. between November and March is in March, it's getting warmer as the days progress. And in November, it's quite the opposite. You're right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> the other thing that I thought of, though, the flip side of that coin is that in March, you know, some of the some of the roads, you know, you're, you're coming off winter. You, you go into corners, you catch a shady spot and you might catch some ice or uh, leftover sand. Yeah. from. So I thought, you know, the spring has its own little bit of treachery. This is true. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. 
Um, so I'm looking at this Farmer's Almanac, though, and the weather looks essentially the same uh, for November as it does for March. And I, and I said to her, what if I just went now? You know, what if I just did it? What if I pulled the trigger and I left like next week? And this is on a Thursday. I'm flying to Colorado. This is, this is at the end of October. I'm flying to Colorado to spend the Halloween weekend with my dad, leaving the following morning. So I, I, I proposed this on a Thursday afternoon. She looks over the desk and she goes, you good? And then I, 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 I pondered the question, Ted, only a matter of like 30 minutes. And I, I bought a first class ticket coming back from New Orleans like two weeks later. And I figured I'll work everything backwards from there. I, I went out of town for the weekend. Uh, I went to Colorado to visit my dad. I had I had work. I had work already scheduled for myself on Monday or Tuesday, and I left Wednesday morning. So it's very generous of you to say I planned. I thank you for that. Um, <laughs> my planning was shit, um, and and uh, and I'd never. I'm not kidding. I'd never ridden more than an hour from my home. I hadn't done any kind of a ride like this. I took off half-assed, wow. half-cocked, down the river in the cold. Wow. That, but you did have some ideas of other places you wanted to go, though. You know, because I knew I was going to do it in the off season, I was thinking of running from like San Diego to the Keys and staying on a southerly route where I could count on some better weather. Uh, somebody had tipped me off that I might find a lot of rain in there. And then I looked at uh, Route 66. Mm-hmm. I was excited about the idea of Route 66, right. which I, uh, I 86 that because I thought it's not a true cross country route. I, I wanted to cross the country end to end. Um and I did do Route 66 a couple years later. I rented a Camaro. I had learned my lesson. Um, but I looked at Route 66. I looked at California 1. I also did the California 1 later. Um, I looked at Interstate 50, you know, the loneliest road. Right. And, yeah. and then I stumbled across. I, it was actually Google. I, I caught a website that it was like the top five cross-country rides. And the Great River Road was on there. And, of course, the Great River Road runs from the headwaters of the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, yeah. And it offered, a, it offered a real distinct advantage in that I could, I could ride my bike out of my driveway and begin yeah, the ride. Exactly. Any place else, I was going to have to ship, one, uh, ship two directions. This way, I, I, I left my house, rode my bike down the river, and then I had it shipped back. Oh. Now, did your uh, assistant, did she play a major role in helping you select that route and plot it out? Um, I don't know. Well, yes and no. She played, again, we're going from Thursday to Wednesday is the entire planning period, and I'm gone for part of it. So, you know, Ted, she did in that she, I just dumped everything on her. I was like, all right, her name's Shannon. And I said, Shannon, I'm leaving Wednesday, Uh, you know, just figure it out. And so she did her best with no information. You know, she's not not a motorcyclist. I, I threw this on her. She she used like MapQuest to figure out my route, which which ended right. up really short of the miles that I actually rode. Um, and she picked out some landmarks down the river, things that she thought would be interesting to me. And then while I rode, she was kind of my support. You know, I checked when checked in with her along the way, and right. and and if I needed something like a hotel reservation or something, you know, she she was my advanced person. And in terms of helping me decide to do the Great River Road. I don't know if I would so much say she she helped me pick the Great River Road, but she helped kick me out of the nest because I, I was really on the fence. I, I said, what if I just do it? And, and I got I got filled with excitement at the idea of going, but also anxiety. And she kind of pushed me out the door. She was like, just go. You know, you just do it. Maybe she's just trying to get rid of you. It might have been. Yeah. She asked me that same question in reverse earlier today. Oh, did she? Yeah. Are you trying to get rid of me? She says. Oh, that's pretty funny. Now, let's talk about the time of year you decided to do this. 
Um, yeah. That baffled the crap out of me. I'm thinking, like, it's November. Why would you do this in November? You know, is it you just didn't feel like waiting until it was warmer out? That was part of it. Uh, I was anxious to go. Um, November uh, provides a couple of things for me. There's the the deer opener in Minnesota, the, the rifle season. Sure. Uh, is right there at the beginning of November. Again, I'm in the trades. So, so many guys, I mean, thousands and thousands of tradesmen take off for a couple of days around that weekend. They disappear. And construction trades really slow down mm, around that, right. that deer opener. And then also during the period that I was going to be gone is the, um, the Veterans Day holiday. Of course. So, uh, uh, you know, our, our system shuts down for that as well. So I had a couple of built-in slow spots in there. November, the construction season's winding down a little bit. It's, it's not too much of a burden on my other guy if I'm gone. So I, I've taken to doing vacations in November. And, uh, and again, the old farmer's almanac <laughs> didn't lead me to believe that there was going to be any trouble. I took off, I took off on this, on this uh, trip. The first time I looked at the weather was the morning I left. And, and our local weatherman is talking about this huge cold front coming in. It, it might have been the day before I left, Ted, because originally I had thought about driving, riding north in Minnesota to the actual headwaters and then coming back south. But that would have put me at least a whole extra day in Minnesota. And so I scrapped that and decided to get the hell out of Minnesota, left yeah. from St. Paul, and decided to spend that extra day detouring over to Nashville. Wow. Now, but you absolutely did not prepare whatsoever for this. Not one iota. And, and you know what? And, and I learned a lot of lessons as a, as a motorcyclist. Yeah. I've never been a gear guy. You know, I, I'm not one of these people who rides in flip-flops. I think that's just dumb. I don't ride barefoot. Uh, you know, I tend not to ride in shorts. But I, did, I, didn't have, I didn't have motorcycling boots. You know, I was wearing a pair of Doc Martens. I had, uh, I had some gloves. You know, I, I had a pair of gauntlets, but they didn't have a liner in them. You know, they were just leather gauntlets that I bought. I don't know. I bought them at Sturgis or some damn thing. And then um, for my jacket, I had a motorcycle-looking jacket, but it didn't have any armor in it. It's, you know, it's just a leather jacket that I had some patches on. Uh, I wore a fleece underneath it. Uh, I didn't even have long underwear. I wore jeans with regular underwear. And then my old man loaned me a set of chaps that were too small, cut off the circulation of my legs. Um, I bought a helmet. I hadn't bought a helmet in 20 years. So I bought a helmet basically on my way out the door from my from my local cycle shop. And uh, in, in terms of preparing, okay, so I was in Colorado. I went on Amazon. I bought myself a tent. I figured I was going to save money camping out. Yeah. So I bought this I bought like a $300 tent. I'd have been better off standing in hotels, but I bought like this $300 one man, you know, fancy pants tent because it folded up really small and would fit on the bike. And then while I'm on Amazon poking around at camping stuff, I convinced myself that I need <laughs> this industrial size can of bear repellent spray. You know, it's like a, it's like a fire extinguisher <laughs> or a thermos. And um, I, I'm picturing myself out at these campsites in this one man tent. And I don't know what the hell I thought was going to happen to me. But the, the bear spray, I thought, could also serve maybe as a people repellent if it came to it. You know, it, it would uh, give me some sort of protection as I flung myself headlong into who knows what. Wow. I'm, I'm just getting, just trying to get over the Doc Martens. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, well, I'm wearing well, a pair right well, now. What was, I the, like what was the temperature when you left? Um, when I left, I think it was 40 um, and wet. Uh, okay, so again, this is we're talking about day before I leave stuff. I think that morning, okay, I sent on Thursday, I took my, my motorcycle to the local cycle shop so they could give it the safety once over, change sure. oil and whatnot before I left. And um, 
between there and my home was a Walmart. I stopped at Walmart and I bought two copies of the same plastic rain suit, you know, for like 15 or $20 or whatever, you know, men's size 2X. So it fits over everything. No zippers. There's a couple snaps up the front. You know, it doesn't give, it doesn't breathe. So leaving my house that morning, I, ha- I had gone to pick up the cycle and come back. My feet were already wet when I left, Ted. And I, I pulled on this stupid blue plastic rain suit over my my jeans, my chaps, my, my leather jacket. And, and I, and I, I, I set off down the river road with, I mean, I can't fathom now what I was thinking. I didn't even have long underwear uh, when I left. And and the Kawasaki, the, it, it was a great bike, the Concours. I, I, I love it. I've put a, I put a lot of miles on it now. And, and it's it's sort of become, you know how you bond with a motorcycle? Yeah, no, I get you know, it. I, I, yeah. I, I, I know it now. It's like a part of, it's like an extension of my body, right? Yeah. And, and I've taken it on adventures, so it means something to me. And it's also paid off. Um, but... Um, it doesn't. It doesn't protect your hands in any way. The way the fairing is designed, the, the air hits you right on the hands, and the grips aren't heated, which was uh, just a dumbass design for that type of bike. Um, so my hands were exposed the whole time, and I'm sure we'll get into it. But by the time the trip was over, I had, I'd done long-term damage to my to my fingertips. Did you really? So I did. Forty degrees when I left. But you know what I was hoping, Ted? Just like you say, um, I had it. My, I had it in my head that it was okay that I didn't have proper gear because I was riding south. And that if I could just gut it out for a day or two, <laughs> I, could I, was gonna, I was going to come to this, this sunny, warm utopia. And uh, and it just never happened. It, it, it Frankly, it was worse at the end than it was at the beginning. The storm wow. had finally caught up to me. You know, it's funny. I, I shouldn't be one to talk because in November of 2019, I rode my motorcycle from here in New Jersey to the Florida Keys the first week yeah. of November. And it, similar in your case... It got colder the further south I went. Right. Just what you don't expect. expect. What you don't expect. You know, but unlike you, I had the gear. <laughs> so I was prepared. I want to do that same ride. Uh, believe it or not, I've never been to New York City. And so I want to go anything. from the, <laughs> I, I want to go from the Keys up to the Northeast. And I and I want to write a book about that one too. And I want to call that one the Keys to Liberty. Oh, there you go. All right. There you go. Yeah. All right. That's a, an adventure for another day though. <laughs> you gonna do it in November? Hell no. Lesson learned. <laughs> Perfect. Now tell us about the route you, you went to the Great River. You went on the Great River Road. Why don't you right. tell a lot of people probably don't know about it. I didn't know about it until I, I listened to your audiobook. So why don't you can you tell us about it? Yeah, and and, and the the end of thing, Ted, I didn't know about it. Um this is not a road that 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 enjoys any cachet. I've never, you know, and and now I've written it, I I've, I've talked about it with people. Nobody knows nobody knows about the Great River Road. And and ironically, now I see as I drive through my own home state here of Minnesota, I see the signs for it all the time now, now that I know about it. But yeah. before I left, I, I didn't know the road existed. If I hadn't googled that website that said top 5, you know, motorcycle trips or cross country sure. trips. And the, and the great river road, I think was ranked like number three. Oh. Um, if I hadn't found it there on the web, I wouldn't have known about it. Either. Wow. Um, now the great, the great river road, the great river road is uh, it's designated scenic byways. And they start at the headwaters of the Mississippi here in Minnesota. And they travel down the Mississippi all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. Now, clearly that river has got two sides to it, two banks. Sure. Yeah. So, all the way down the river, there's a single national designated route, and then the opposite bank is a state route. 
So, so there's one national route and it jumps back and forth based on, you know, scenery or cultural value or whatever. And then the opposite side of the bank of wherever the national route is, is basically the same side or, or same signage, but it's a designated state route. So you can ride down the river on either bank you like, or you can hop back and forth as many times as you like. And if you're riding down the Mississippi, you're on the Great River Road. It's yeah. just, are you on the state route or the national route? Now, if anybody's um, ever looked at the map and actually followed the Mississippi River right down to the point where it becomes a tiny little tributary, it's actually, it really, really, it's very long. It's really long. It's um, much longer he, than you think. Well, and when Shannon punched in, okay, St. Paul to New Orleans on MapQuest, generically following the route of the Mississippi River Road, she came up hundreds of miles short of what I actually rode. Wow, I rode yeah. 2,500 miles yeah, down that river. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, and again, so you're talking to a guy, I, no shit, Ted. I'd not, I'd not ridden more than an hour from my home by myself. I'd been to Sturgis <laughs> twice. So I'd done, I'd ridden a couple hundred miles in a day before, but, but to take off on 2,500 mile, I mean, I may as well have shot for the moon. I had no idea what I was doing and <laughs> I didn't have a map of any kind. I figured, you know, how the hell hard is it to fall the river? Right. And it bucks and bows and jumps all over the place. Um, and it was beautiful and magnificent in in my own fouled attempts to follow the damn thing. Um, that was half of the fun. Yeah. The signage is difficult. You can't punch it into your GPS and say Great River Road because um, the Great River Road is a, is a designator. It's not a road. Every part of it is known by another name. You know, you're on Highway 61 for a while and then you're on some – just I, I rode on like a residential street in Missouri that was part of the Great River Road, you know, and so so you can't punch it in like that. You just have to follow the signs or go online and get a guide or something. Right. Um, and then s still half the time, you're not 100 percent sure if you're actually on the Great River Road. You just try to keep the river in sight as best you can. Um, no, it's funny. Do you want to know the history of it at all? Yeah, go ahead, please. To tell me about it. I mean, it, okay. when was it initially established, though? Okay, so just before World War II, this guy in uh, Roosevelt's cabinet, um, and I'm going to give him the wrong name, but it, his name is Ickes, and, and he was the, the father or the grandfather of dude that served in the Clinton administration. Anyway, so Ickes comes up with this idea uh, that there should be a scenic byway on the Mississippi River. Okay. And they decide they're going to commission a study on it. U.S. enters World War II. All that extraneous stuff gets pushed to the side, right? So... So there's no movement on this Great River Road till after the war. They finally do the study. It's government. It takes to like the early 70s before any action is taken. Okay. And then, then basically, you know, the states the states started throwing up signs, and then and then there it is. I think the you know the the federal government released some some funding for it. They didn't want to build any new roads, so they'll link existing parts together or or buy the signs or whatever. But it, it's largely, I think, a state effort. I don't think there's a lot of federal money that goes into it. And, and and it's um, you know, it's kind of a whistle. I I, I don't know. It's it's not. It, it's it, as far as, as if you're going to follow a route, the Great River Road is probably a, a difficult one to follow just because of it is so hodgepodge and so hit and miss. But you know, now I've got an attachment to it. Yeah. Now I you know, on that note, where does it start? Where does the Great River Road actually start? So it's the headwaters of the Mississippi, and I'm going to pull a, I'm going to pull a big foul, big party foul as a Minnesotan. Think, and, and, and to be fair, I'm not originally Minnesotan. I'm from Colorado. But I think that's Hibbing. I think it starts up in Hibbing, Minnesota. And somebody's going to call me out on that. I'm going to be in so much trouble. But it's, <laughs> it's where the actual headwaters of the Mississippi are. 
and then all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. And in fact, I, I finished my ride in New Orleans, but the Mississippi continues a little past that. You know, it goes through all this industrial like shipping and, and, and whatnot. And, and I was like, yeah. New Orleans is good enough. I'm not riding another 60 miles down, you know, into the armpit <laughs> of Louisiana. No. Um, but, but that's that's the road. It's funny because you know, I was I have been looking at the because you did this I've been following I've been looking on the map, and of course you go on Google Maps and I I, I follow the river, down to the point where I was like, I was, that's all you saw on there and I was following it, and it goes nearly, well it looks like well they have it labeled where it's almost in South Dakota. Oh, okay, I'll take your word for it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm um, wow. I was like, I was again, I cheated. <laughs> I started in St. Paul <laughs> yeah. um, and, and from my little town, St. Paul now, and St. Paul's a river town, yes. you know, St. Paul, St. Paul's inextricably, inextricably tied uh, to the Mississippi river. And, and the interesting thing about St. Paul too, where I started, because for me, from my driveway to downtown St. Paul was about an hour ride. All so right. it was a real easy place to intercept the road. Sure. Um, and, and it, and it, it makes for, it rolls off the tongue easy. St. Paul to new Orleans. Um, but St. Paul has got um, got a lot of bluffs there, and, and it's actually a good break if you're looking to 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 say I'm going to ride a segment of this river, because river river barges and and steamboats and whatnot coming up river into Minnesota were basically stalled out at St. Paul because there's bluffs that make it uh, unnavigable north past St. Paul. Really, it, it's shallow. There's a lot of bluffs. There's there's some locks and dams, but right. essentially. St. Paul's a northern terminus for commercial traffic. Oh, okay. All right. You know what? I'm just noticing here on this as I'm looking at the because I'm following what you had just said about where it starts. And it looks like there's two branches of it. But the oh. Great River Road starts on the on the eastern side, further north. Okay. Oh, okay. I, I got it. I got to take your word, Ted. This is terrible. How am I a man who wrote a book about the Great River Road? I don't know where the damn thing starts. <laughs> Actually, I'm sorry. I know Ted. where I started it. <laughs> That's fine. It goes west. It's it's actually a it's a mess, but the Great River Road starts up north of St. Paul. Okay. All yeah, right. and I and I caught it in St. Paul. So okay. I don't no, think I cheated too badly. No. <laughs> That's all right. Now, did you now you didn't know about this when it started? And so, this actually was more like an exercise and exploration for you. It really was. It really was. And the first time, and 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 frankly. You know, I didn't have I didn't have a GPS system set up on the bike or anything, right? I had my iPhone, but I I didn't even have a mount for it. Ted, I got I got my iPhone. It, it, anybody who drives a, who rides a concourse knows there's a, there's a little plastic cubby on top of the gas tank. It's got a flip top lid. It gets jammed sometimes, but it's for like your your wallet, your lifesavers, you know, your hand sanitizer or whatever. So I would jam my phone in there. I had a, I had an audio cable to come out. I had a little aftermarket uh, speaker system on there. But you know, for the most part, I was running without uh, without any maps or GPS of any kind. So I just sort of bumbled into the Great River Road. I knew if I went to St. Paul and found the river, I'd find a damn road. And so the first time I saw the sign, I was so happy. I pulled over and took a selfie of myself with the sign, and, and then took took off south from there. And nothing really awesome happened for the first couple of days. But I was so damn excited to be on the river and, and moving further away from my house and, and taking off on this adventure that I was just giddy with it. So you were primarily relying on signage to lead the way yeah and then in the evenings when i would stop you know, when i was settled in for a meal or whatever i'd pull up my phone 
you know, I'd go to Google. I had a couple of websites where they talked about the Great River Road. So I would reference some things in the evening sometimes. And then I would just do like screen captures. Uh, You know, if if there was a piece of map that I thought (laughs) might be useful to me the next day, I would screenshot it. And, uh, you know, it's in my it's in my photos. So 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 you so you didn't even use a laptop on this trip, did you? No, no, I didn't. If I didn't have long johns, I sure as hell didn't have a laptop. Now let's talk about the this is old school. Wow, let's talk about. Did you have paper maps at least? I didn't have paper maps. No. Oh, wow. Wow. I figured how how hard is it to lose this goddamn river? You, you know, it's, are it's the, a huge you, body of water. Wow, you you're yeah. you're the embodiment of Lewis and Clark, right? I you know and and I and that's why I say I didn't know what to expect. I, I set off in search of adventure and it found me. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Perhaps not the way you wanted, but you found it. Now, as yeah. far as it goes for the, the GRR, we'll abbreviate it. Has it yeah. always been this definitive route or has it changed over the years? I don't think it has changed over the years. Um, if anything, I think what's happened is if, if you could picture a ship or a jigsaw puzzle or something coming together, you know, like if you had a time lapse photo of some, you know, a time lapse collage of something being built, I think that's how the Great River Road has come together. Um, as, as the States came on board, you know, and, and I don't know that they had any, any, uh, timeline that they had to adhere to or, or anything. So it's the individual legislatures, it's the individual departments of transportation, uh, doing this thing and putting up the signs. And, and there was significant power to the States to decide in, within their run, what do they want to designate as a great river road? What do they think is important? If, if they thought they had something really cool, 90 miles away from the river, they were free to designate that as part of the Great River Road. So it, it doesn't necessarily follow the exact course. And uh, and like I say, it, it's up to the states to decide. And I can't imagine because the whole thing really started to come online in, in the early 70s. And and I just can't imagine that they've adjusted it much in the meantime. Um, I, I'm maybe not the best spokesman for the Great River Road to tell you whether or not there's been changes. But I, I just can't imagine there have been because it's, it's still a pretty freshly designated route. So there is not one specific road the entire length that is, you know, that they've labeled, this is it. M- much like no. Route 66. You know, this is Route 66, but I guess unlike Route 66, uh, the Great River Road has not realigned at any point. I, it, and I, I wouldn't say that because I don't, I don't want to be caught out and, and be mistaken, but it, it's the, the Great River Road is more of a labeling exercise than anything else. Right, Again, okay. every part of the Great River Road is called by a primary name that is not Great River Road. Uh, US 61 is a significant part of the Great River Road, Okay. Um, for instance. But, uh, but and that's what makes it hard to, you know, even if you did want to do a laptop or GPS or something, you can't punch in Great River Road because all of those roads are known by an, another name, another primary name. All right, so this was mostly, this was a signage route more than it was. It a, really is. Okay, wow, okay. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Now, <laughs> I, well, I'm, I'm going to ask you, I, I know the answer already, but I'm going to ask you. It didn't seem to disappoint you at all. No. And, you know, firstly, I'm an easy guy to please. Okay. You know, I like it. I like a hamburger, or a beer, some whiskey, wind in my hair, you know, a little bit of sunshine, a pretty girl. Hell, I'm I, I'm not looking for a lot out of life, right? Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> and uh, so, and, and, I, and I didn't have any expectation. You know, the, the, you know, I, all I knew was I had a, you know, I, I splurged. I bought a first class ticket to get home. And I knew I had to get to New Orleans before that plane left. Um, I made a couple of hotel reservations along the way. And then I took off and I found really cool stuff. And, and I'll say this, and I think that your listeners uh, will understand this. Um, when you ride a motorcycle, you're a member of a, of a fraternity. 
and people treat you well. You know, I had an experience my first day on the road. Uh, the first time I stopped for gas and I started to realize how cold it was and how unprepared I was. I mean, it was my first gas station stop. I was already miserable and it was gloomy out. It was like 40 degrees. I think there was a, it was a little bit of misty rain and this convenience store clerk, um, I, I went to, I was buying a Red Bull and she goes, uh, it's like a good day for a ride. And I, and I kind of gave her a look like, are you crazy? And she said, she said, honey, every day is a good day for a ride. And, uh, and I think you run into this community of people who understand, um, or who are willing to help or just want to talk to you, you know, going to a bar or a restaurant and you set your helmet on, on the, on the table or on, on the bar, people will come up and talk to you. Oh, uh, and yeah. that was something, oh, yeah. that was something that was really cool for me, particularly going down the road solo and then the other thing that I found was I stumbled across, because I didn't know what to expect, right? So I stumbled across stories that, were real, that, that really touched me in one way or another as I went down the road. You know, I started you know, thinking I'd, I'd appreciate the kitschy stuff. Like um, still in the state of Minnesota, the Red Wing Shoe Company has this, this colossal boot. You know, it, it's too big for the Statue of Liberty's foot. And they've got it right in their, right in their uh, lobby. So I start off looking for this sort of uh, roadside America type attraction. Sure. And then as I, as I wrote and researched the book, I found out about all these great stories. I met a couple of really neat people along the way, but then I found out stories as I researched the route and researched places I, I went. Um, uh, Dick Bowser, the guy that designed the tram at the St. Louis Arch, as I researched this guy and, and learned about his, because I was, I was trying to find out how do I want to write about the arts, something that's been written about before, but he's bored by. So I researched the guy that designed the tram, and I'm not kidding you, Ted. When I when I when I figured out this guy's story and I finished writing it, I cried. You know, I I I just I I it was touching, and and there's stories of regular. Americans who are going about their business and they're not seeking any glory. They're, they're just doing their part and, and it can be incredibly touching and, and it makes you feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself. Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, that whole motorcycle mentality that's out there, the quote-unquote you know, cliche brotherhood that everybody uses, brings you closer to people that you didn't know and helps right. you identify. But you, you get identified much easier right. and you and you, you experience that you know but at the same time it, it it makes you feel certainly more in touch with your environment when you're out there experiencing these things and that's really good it helps you out. and and i'll i'll add to that i'm a clown riding down the river road in 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 crazy bad weather okay so and because i i re-listened to my own book this week to try and you know do my homework for your show and they had closed river traffic on the upper Mississippi. So I'm already out of Minnesota, but the, but this cold front is coming. They closed river traffic on the Mississippi for the for the uh, the earliest since they had since 1969 uh, when I decided to take this trip. And then um, they had record-breaking cold across the country as a result of this tropical storm, Nuri, that I didn't know anything about. Um, but it, it just pushed this, this huge mass of cold air down across the country, and people were scrambling – uh, you know, because because it was so unexpected, and there I am, a dumbass on a motorcycle riding through their town. So people who would already have a good nature and kind of kind of be friendly to you as a motorcyclist, maybe doubled down on that, looking at me rolling in cold and red and and obviously frozen. So I got I got like double goodwill. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, getting back to the route a little bit, you crossed the Mississippi quite a few times. 
Is yeah. that was that is that because the route actually took you that way, or was this just intentional detours you took? It was part of it was intentional um, because okay, there's ten states along along the Mississippi, and I wanted to be sure to ride in each of them, and then I had some things that I wanted to see. When I set off, there were there were things that were can't miss. You know, St. Louis Arch can't miss. Uh, I wanted to see uh, sunshine, sunny pain uh, down yeah, we'll in talk about uh, that. Arkansas. Yeah. yeah. Um, there, you know, what else? Uh, Memphis, you know, I knew I was going to go to Memphis. So, so there are things that necessitate crossing the river back and forth. But then also as I was writing, if I saw a good looking bridge, uh, I, I took it and, uh, you know, or if I thought something was going to be more interesting on the other side of the road, if, if I was in a boring flat spot or I was on a four lane road that I, I didn't think really measured up to what my writing expectations were, I would just leap over to the other side of the river and, um, I really don't know how many times, Ted, that I that I crossed the river just on a lark, but I mean dozens and dozens of times over my nine days. And and one thing that that brought home for me, um, you know, as a motorcyclist, riding across a bridge deck can be can be a little off putting. You know, sometimes the winds yeah. are high, or or, or <laughs> they got the steel grates or whatever. Um, I really got to, I really got the feeling like we've got some shabby ass bridges, um, and so so then when I was writing the book, I got interested in like bridges. So I you know when I knew for sure that I had crossed in a certain place, I'd researched that bridge, and and a lot of them are, are literally falling apart. I mean it's a national emergency the, the condition of our bridges, um, and by the time I was on day like seven eight nine, I was sick of crossing bridges. I crossed this one into Memphis, and. It was the last thing I wanted to do. It was cold. It was windy. I'm sharing the bridge deck with semi-traffic. And crossing that river was the last thing I wanted to do. But I desperately wanted to get to that warm hotel bed. So, you know, what are you going to do? Did the weather at this point it get worse or better? I had a um, – it got worse. The day I rode into Memphis, the storm had essentially caught up with me. I'm being chased down the river by this – specter of a storm right and and you know i'm moving it you know what's my average speed 50 miles an hour maybe and it i mean it's barreling down at me like a train and it caught me it caught me in arkansas um that day in arkansas was a was a miserable ride i almost fell off um you know i I got into a slide i was in heavy rain uh i was coming into memphis and and that day the weather caught me and I, I was having mechanical difficulty at that point too, and I really started to wonder if I was going to finish. If, if I, wow. you know, if, if if I had if I had what it took to get the ride even completed, or if just going home was yeah. going to be my goal. Um, but I had I had a couple of nice days, and nice for me in November on the Great River Road in 2014. Nice meant 55, 60 degrees, That's a perfect. Bit of sun. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I had a lot of right at freezing temperatures, a little below, a little above, and the wind chill. You know, that morning I rode into Metropolis, uh, I think that was the morning I damaged my fingers. Um, so that, that storm, it just, it hectored me for nine days. Wow. That's horrible. Now, well, did you get any snow? Uh, I didn't get snow. Oh, good. I didn't well, get snow. I got, I got rain, but no snow. Wow. Now, did you There was, there was did, snow aplenty in Minnesota, <laughs> but I had just escaped it. <laughs> I can imagine. You didn't ride at night at all, did you? Not intentionally. Um, the days were shorter than I expected. Uh, and, and I don't mean that they were necessarily short on the clock. You know, a, a guy knows how much daylight he's got. Um, but what happened is my riding goals for the day were too ambitious. Um, I was stopping to take too many photos. I was taking too long with meals. Uh, I was taking too many warm up breaks. 
and it seemed like every day it, it was all I could do to get to my stopping spot before it got dark. And and riding riding in the dark on an unfamiliar road when you're fatigued and cold yep. um, can be pretty scary. I, I uh, ride around. Um, uh, where was I at? I was down in uh, Cape Girardeau, Missouri. The first time I came into Cape Girardeau, Missouri, it was dark, and the road is wooded heavily on one side. And you know, you you end up in these little flights of fancy where your imagination takes off. And all I could think of was deer you know, coming out of those woods. Uh, and and yeah. hitting a deer on a dark and lonely road, you know, five states away from home or something, and uh, and it spooked me. And I was really trying not to ride at night. Oh well, good. Uh, getting to some of the things that you your detours, uh, yeah. you, you detoured into Nashville. Tell us about that. I did, I did, and that was great. Nashville was a highlight of the trip, and I, I didn't I didn't mean it to be. Um, I, I thought I might have fun. Um, Okay, so let me think about this. So I skipped the northernmost part of the Great River Road, which gave me an extra day. So I had to decide where did I want to spend that day. Did I want to, did I want to do two days in Memphis, two days in New Orleans? Um, I didn't think I needed – This is I'm still planning at home, right? So I didn't realize how difficult it would be to cover the amount of ground I did every day. So you know, I pictured in my head that I'd be done like 2 o'clock in the afternoon and go do dumb tourist stuff every day. I didn't realize it would be <laughs> all I could do to get to my campground, you know? Uh, so I decided I was going to go over to Nashville, and uh, Shannon, uh, my assistant, had arranged for me to tour a, uh, a whiskey distillery in Nashville. So you know, I knew I had to be there by a certain time, but um, Nashville promised me uh, a little bit of warmth, um, uh, a little bit of something different from the river for the day, and then also, you know, as I tried to put together a theme for this trip, I realized that going going into the South, I was going to pass through some pretty cool music country. You know, I was yeah. going to the, the Delta Blues. Uh, that Memphis rock and roll sound, and then Nashville allowed me to throw country right on top of that too. And I'm I'm really into music. I'm not a musician, but I love music. And so I looked forward to going to Nashville. Nashville, I had a ripping good time. Uh, I went to Honky Tonk Row. I was treated very well, and I met I met uh, this really cool guy Barry Walker. And uh, you know, you just talk about the hospitality that you receive on the road. Um, I would be happy to share about Barry Walker. Go ahead, yeah, sure. Okay, so. I have to ride the interstate all day out of Kentucky to get over to Nashville. I right. hate riding on the interstate as is. So um, I, it just seems too fast for me. And, and the semi-traffic bothers me. And I'm so afraid, like, uh, you know, some family in a minivan is going to be fighting with the kids or something and just wipe me out. I, I prefer to ride, like, 50 to 60 miles an hour on, on, on the two lanes. Right. So I'm on the interstate going 70 with local traffic. And, and uh, by the time I get to Nashville, like, my nerves are shot. And the distillery where I'm going is in this, um, it's in a development called the Marathon Auto Works. And, and it's this old car factory from like the teens that went defunct. Um, and it's in the same facility where um, Antique Archaeology is, the American oh, really? Picker guys. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to touring this, this whiskey distillery. I get in there. I pull into the lot. It's a little bit sunny. It's like 55 degrees. I'm so relieved. I'm going to have a nice, you know, it's, it's reasonably early in the day. I'm going to have a nice time in Nashville. And I pull into this lot, and there's uh, there's an old gold wing parked in like a loading dock next to uh, an artist's tent where this guy is selling photo prints. So I pull the cow in next to this gold wing, figuring I've got some motorcycle parking there. And there's a big no parking sign, like right at eye level. And I, and I go, okay, I, I'm going to have to back this thing up. So I, I started pushing, you know, towing myself out of the parking space because I don't have a reverse gear or anything. Right. So I start towing myself out of here. And, uh, 
this this artist guy. He's like look like Jimmy Buffett. You know, he's got like uh, uh, like loose khaki shorts and Hawaiian shirt. He's all suntan. He's probably not dressed even warm enough for the weather there, but just a really like, like Costco version of Jimmy Buffett is the best that I would describe him, right? And uh, he goes, "Hey, you can park there." And I was like, "You're sure?" And he goes, "Oh yeah, you'll be good." So I parked the bike. Um, my distillery tour is not starting for like 30 minutes or something. So I go inside. I use the restroom. I'm, I'm banging around looking at gift shop and antique archaeology and stuff. And I start thinking, "Who the hell is Jimmy Buffett to tell me I can park there?" You know, I got everything I own on my motorcycle. I'm so far from home. I still got to get to New Orleans. I don't want this thing towed, ruined Nashville. So I go back outside. He's gone kind of sneaky i move my motorcycle to the parking lot across the street right i'm like no way i'm trusting this guy so i go across the street and he busts me walking back so jimmy buffett like i'm walking back in jimmy buffett spots me again he's like why'd you move and so i felt really bad because because it it signals to him that i don't trust him right you know Uh, yeah yeah. he's offered me a courtesy and i and i spit on it right yeah so i said you know I'm doing this cross-country trip. Everything I had was on my motorcycle. You told me I could park there, but the sign said I couldn't. I just didn't want to get it wrong. And he goes, no, I'm sure you could park there. I know the owner of the whole place. He says he'd probably like to meet you. He's a motorcyclist. And uh, I'm supposed to start this tour. So he tells me, no worries. Uh, here's my number. Call me up when it's over, and, and I'll take you to meet Barry. And so after my tour, I hook back up with this guy, and he introduces me to the owner of this whole complex, this guy, Barry Walker. Barry Walker, I didn't, I didn't reckon on this when i came in um this, this guy is larger than life right he's smoking cigars he's got he's, he's brought this this piece of derelict land back from the dead you know he talks about he bought it on the verge of uh, of, of uh, demolition there's you know prostitution going on there it's a crack den he tells stories about just the bad old days in nashville when, when, when he first got this place right um but i walk into his office and when i'm not expecting i come into and i'm a cigar smoker I come into this room that's got such a thick cigar haze. I can barely breathe. Like it takes me a second <laughs> to catch my breath when we come in. And he's sitting behind this giant console. He's like Lex Luthor in there, right? He's behind this giant console and he's got like uh, TV monitors playing with the news and stuff. He, you know, and uh, he's drinking a Bud, and, but he's in a wheelchair. And, wow. and, I, and, and I, I wasn't prepared for that when I was going into the medium. Um, and it, he started telling me his life story. He'd had a, he'd had a catastrophic uh, accident on Harley Davidson a few years ago and left him wheelchair bound. Um, oh. but it, but it never stopped him. He just kept going. You know, he, he was, he was, um, he was a hard charger his whole life. Um, started with nothing, showed up in Nashville with an old Datsun Z and I think he pawned his CB radio for gas money. You know? And, and this was the type of story that I, that I ran into more than once along the way that was really inspirational. Here's a guy who starts with nothing, builds a life, uh, is having fun in that life. It's kicked in the teeth by by circumstance, you know, coming around a corner on his Harley, uh, you know, a car takes him out. He ends up in a wheelchair, um, but he keeps going. And then he, he becomes this sort of real estate mogul. Um, he's the, like the, the world's preeminent authority on this long forgotten car brand marathon. Um, and, uh, and, and he's just a larger than life guy. And he regaled me with stories of his life for about an hour and a half. I felt like I wasn't keeping up my end of the conversation. I was just drinking beer and smoking his cigars, you know. And then, um, but, but he was inspiring. And, he, and he, one of the things he said to me is he goes, um, you know, everybody is, is waiting for their midlife crisis to start living. He said, your midlife crisis should start at birth. Said, you don't know how wow. much time you've got. Right. Yeah. And wow. he was just such a cool guy. And then when I left, he gave me a couple stogies to take with me. And he wrote his cell phone number, his personal cell phone number on the back of a business card. 
And he said, if you need anything uh, here in town, call me. And then he asked me where I was staying. And I was staying at a hotel about a mile away. And he was glad for that because he didn't want me riding across town too far, you know, with a couple of beers in me on my motorcycle. Right. Um, He was just, he was motorcyclist to motorcyclist. He was concerned about my safety. Sure. And uh, I mean, that was, I loved him. I loved Barry. I sent him a copy of my book. I never heard back from him, but I (laughs) I, I really enjoyed Barry. And, uh, and then I went and got just hammered on Honky Tonk Row. (laughs) You did that a few times. I, you know what? I, I try to downplay it in the story or, you know, in the book. Um, but yeah, alcohol was, uh, you know, I had gasoline and alcohol and hamburgers kind of fueled this trip. Bacon, um, <laughs> bacon, but, yes. uh, yeah. I mean, okay. If I'm, if I'm saying to myself, I need to stop every night by dark, what am I going to do between dark and bedtime? So I did end up doing a lot of drinking. I did distillery tours. I did, um, you know, I, I always tried to drink the local brew. Yeah. Um, you're on the East coast. you got Yingling, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we don't have Yingling here, oh. so I, mean, I, I was trying to drink my weight in Yingling in nine days, <laughs> and uh, uh, so yeah, it was. But uh, but yeah, Honky Tonk Girl was something. Oh, that's awesome! And, and I I overdid it that day. <laughs> uh, you shared with the, the the readers of the book many facts, some of the things you saw along the route. Quite fascinating stuff, like you were just saying about the the St. Louis Arch. Did the trip? turned out to be more of an eye-opener for you than you had thought it might be um you know that's a good question i think it changed me a little bit i think it made me more self-sufficient um i think it made me more uh more aware i think i've become a better planner i wouldn't take off on a trip like that in the same way that i did then you know now now i would make sure that i was properly geared up i'd check the weather you know i've, I've done a lot of dumb things in my life and frankly, I, I've not been a good model motorcyclist. You know, like I say, I rode for many years without proper gear. Um, you know, just doing dumb stuff. Um, that night, um, you know, I, I say I got I got trashed out in Nashville. I just had a really good time on Honky Tonk Row, meeting different people, listening to country acts and whatnot. Yeah. And I got back to my I got back to my room and I wanted to get to the Corvette factory yeah. uh, in Kentucky the next yeah. morning for a tour. And I woke up the next day and I was hungover. You know, I took a, like a fistful of ibuprofen, drank another, you know, another 10,000 Red Bull of the trip. And I got on the bike and I left the hotel room and I started heading north towards Kentucky. And I realized, you know, you're not just hungover. You're maybe probably not in any condition to ride. Um, but I'm stranded so far away from home. What am I going to do? So I kept going. You know, would I do that again? Absolutely not. And I, I so I did. What did I what did I gain an appreciation of on the trip? My own stupidity, my own hubris. Uh, a disregard of safety um, that I, you know, I, I think I took some lessons there away from that and, and I'm a better, better person, better writer for it now. Um, I, I learned to, uh, I learned a little more about my own country and a part of the country that people don't visit. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. The, the river is dying. You know, it was, it was once such an important part of commerce and culture and life in the country. That's, that's why they bothered to, to put this road together in the first place. But those river towns, those those, you know, it's that rust belt in America is dying and people don't see that stuff anymore. And for me, I see a real beauty and decay. Like I like rundown stuff, rusty ships, cars with trees growing up through the engine compartment. That stuff is really cool to me. Yeah. And there's plenty of that to be found on the river road. Um, so I don't know. Did I do any any good answer in that you question? Did, you did. <laughs> but you did yeah. some, uh, all the research that you did after the fact. I yeah. guess you learned more than you imagined you would. And that's really what happened, right? So I take this nine-day ride, and I come back, and um, I, I've written a couple other books before. 
And, and, and people often say when they, when they talk to somebody who writes, they go, oh, how long was the book? And, and when you're reading a book, you think of it, was it a 300-page book, a 400-page book, or a 1,000-page book? But writers think in terms of word count. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I come back from I come back from Orleans, and I, and I kind of want to write a book about this, and I, and I don't think I'm going to have the word count. You know, 60,000 words is minimum for a novel. And, and I just don't know if nine days of my sorry ass rolling down the river, if there's going to be enough of a story there, right? <laughs> so I start writing this thing and, and my own memories, and I, I took hundreds of photos and I took notes, but my own memories are not going to be sufficient. Sure. So I turn to Google Street View and I, and I basically it. start replicating the road. And, and I'm seeing all these things. It's a great memory jog. So I'd sit down to, to write for the day and I will Street View what I had written. And, uh, and, and so much of what I, uh, so much of what's in there, uh, came, you know, came from recollections jarred by Google street view. And then I'd say, okay, so I'm riding through, you know, like, okay, so I went up in the St. Louis arch. Uh, I took the tram to the top. I wanted to do that. I'd never done it before. But when I took the tram to the top of the arch, I, I didn't know any of the backstory behind it. Then when I'm trying to find a way to write about the arch, you know, what's novel about the arch, who cares? Um, I knew that the thing that I wanted to do more than anything else while I was there was to take that tram. Yeah, so you, you start yeah. researching that and you find this guy, this guy who, who designed the tram. Um, he started off in college, uh, in, in, you know, early 1940s, Japanese attack Pearl Harbor. He says, hell with this. I got to go fight. So he joins the Navy. And, you know, he, he's fighting in the Pacific. He comes back. He never finishes school. He goes to work in his dad's elevator business. And, you know, the great engineering minds of the day are stumped by this, how the hell are we going to get people to the top of the St. Louis Arch? And this guy just comes in and figures it out. You know, he doesn't have a college degree. He's not an engineer. He's an elevator guy. And he just makes it work. And, um, and so, like, that story of Dick Bowser, I didn't know. Yeah. Taken off. But in the research afterwards, learning all those things, it made the road richer to me. And I think... You know, if I'd had a book like mine that I could have read before I left that pointed out some of this stuff to me, that would have been awesome. And I think at some point I'm going to want to ride the river again, knowing the stories. I know. Right. One of the things I like to do when I listen to an audio book is to have if I if I'm in front of a computer, if I have that option to me is to have Google Maps open and. Every time the author, in your in this case you, mentions a place, I will zoom to it on the map or a specific road, and I will do a street view to see what you were talking about. And that was fascinating yeah. to me. This One particular case, you were talking about some house or something with a red roof. It was a boarding house or something like that. It's still yeah. standing. It's still there, and it's been there for over 100 years or something like that. It was it was fascinating to me to think that what you were talking about, I'm looking at on the screen, and it's still there. And and when there was something cool that you could see on Google Maps or that you could find online, I sometimes tip the reader off to that and said, you know, you can find online a picture of this yeah. or that or the other thing. I think what you're talking about is in Future City. But yes. I just want to back yes. up for a second. Uh, so so I said I was concerned that I wouldn't be able to, to muster 60,000 words on this book. Right. When I finished it, my initial manuscript was 92,000. So so I way overshot that 60 minimum, right. and then yeah. I had to start trimming things out. Because every one of these towns I researched, there was always a compelling story. And I got a subscription to this service called newspapers.com. And so so I'd, I'd just look for newspaper articles that came out of this place or that place, 
and I learned crazy shit on newspapers.com. I, I've, I've still got the subscription, $75 every six months. I'm glad to pay it because um, what you find is history sanitizes things for us and, and gives us a, particularly point of, a particular point of view on an event, right? Like in Cairo, Illinois, I, I burned probably 8,000 words talking about uh, the lynching of Froggy James, which, right. which happened in, in Cairo. It was the anniversary date of the lynching of Froggy James when I wrote through Cairo, and I didn't know about that. You know, this is something I learned later. Um, but so I start looking at the, the story about Froggy James and, and the story is told now through the lens of today and how we look at things now. But I, I went back and I'm, I'm looking at newspaper accounts from the time and, it, and it's, I'm not saying the story is different, but the perspectives on it are different and you see well, the way people, it's not sanitized. It's not sanitized. It's, it wasn't sanitized. Exactly. And you, and people write crazy shit a hundred yeah. years ago. You go like, What? Um, yeah. And you and it and it's almost like you're you're really there. So that was cool. Um, okay, so that that building you were talking about, the like boarding house thing. Yeah, I think that was just north of Cairo in a town called Future City. Yes, which is ironically yes. named as hell because it's like a 1,200 person town that is derelict. Uh, I mean, it, it is a ghost town. And so there's like this little boarding house with a red roof, and it's got like a Budweiser sign on yes. it. And that was actually when I researched that, I I believe. I hope I'm not quoting this wrong. I, I think it was a it was a Negro high school at the time. It, it was like it was like a, it was a big deal. Then it falls into disuse, and then you know, 90, 150 years later, whatever it is, now it's just a it's just a boarding house. And and I rode through some places that were pretty pretty hard scrabble, and uh, and and that was one where you know I was sitting on my bike out front taking pictures, and and I addressed this in the book too. Um, sometimes as a tourist. You're taking a picture of something that looks cool because it's run down or whatever, but then you have to realize that real people—that's that's their home. So here yeah. I come rolling through on my big touring bike with Minnesota plates, and I'm sitting up beside the road taking places or taking pictures of something where a guy is making his life there and, and doesn't necessarily appreciate that. You yeah, know? no, I understand. And the thing is, some of the towns that you were passing through throughout the whole length of this trip, like I'm following it on Google Maps and I'm, I'm zooming in on Street View. And it, it's just an indication. It kind of reminded me of some of the Route 66 things, is that you're running through towns that, for all intents and purposes, like it, they're, be, they're held together by masking tape. And you're wondering yeah. how, what people are doing remaining in a place that there's nothing there anymore. You know, it has to really well, hit you. That's, that's a really cool point, Ted. And, I, and I, I'll say a couple of things about that. I had... Um, I had more than one experience where one time I, I had stopped for coffee and I was warming my hands in this little Jack and Jill grocery store in the middle of nowhere, Iowa. And uh, the clerk in there came over and was visiting with me. And she was like an 18 or 19 year old girl. And, uh, and, her, and her story, you know, in, in, the, in the eight minutes we were friends, her story is, I want to get the hell out of Iowa. And then, uh, then I, I met somebody else, you know, in, a, in another diner. And their story was, I, I want to get the hell out of Iowa. Uh, you know, these, these young people trapped in these dying towns that don't offer them anything. Um, the second girl that wanted out of Iowa, her dream was to go to Louisville, Kentucky, you know. Um, so they just want to be somewhere else. So yeah. these towns are dying because the young people are leaving. And then the flip side of that coin, you know, uh, I went to Cape Girardeau twice. Uh, I rode to Cape Girardeau, uh, departed from there and went over to Nashville. And then I, then I doubled back from Nashville so I could pick up the road again in Cape Girardeau. The second night I was in Cape Girardeau. I met this this older artist. He's a retired uh, American Greetings uh, card artist, and uh, he had been uh, like a couple of other people, like uh, like Barry Walker. 
he was on this preservation kick. You know, he, he was on like the town board and, and he was trying to resurrect their, their beautiful old downtown and was so committed to saving that that architecture and those structures and, and bringing vibrancy back to an area that was dying. So you see people who are in a hurry to get the hell out and you see people who are working really hard to hold things together. So I think that masking tape analogy is pretty good. Yeah, I get it. Um, I get the impression you're a Superman fan. I am. I have a, uh, I have a Superman tattoo on my chest. <laughs> you uh, do not. Um, I tell the story. I tell that story in, in the book. I am a Superman fan. Uh, I'm not a comic book guy. Yeah. In fact, um, I do like sci-fi and stuff. And I, I started going to conventions, you know, not regularly. Um, listen to me trying to distance myself from yeah. any sort of nerd culture. Like, oh, not me, not me. But I do. I like that stuff. And yeah. so, you know, when the opportunity would pop up, I would go to go to a convention and whatnot. And, and I remember some at some point somebody asked me, probably 10 years ago, are you a DC or Marvel fan? I didn't know the difference. I don't know which which is which. It turns out I'm DC. Okay. Um, but I didn't know at the time. So I guess the point I'm making is I didn't grow up reading comic books, um, but the Superman story is kind of dear to my heart. Yeah. And you could do you could do two or three hours on Superman. You know, another podcast uh, with a different <laughs> different couple of people talking. But well, um, Superman. That, well, I was gonna say go on that note, you visited Metropolis. Uh, how, yeah. How was that? Okay, so I said there's, there were there are parts of the river that I that I had to get to. Yeah. So I've got this fresh Superman tattoo. Shannon is doing flurried research over the weekend before I leave. She stumbles across the Superman Museum in Metropolis. Uh, is it Metropolis, Illinois? Um, so she stumbles across the Super Museum, and we're like, "Well, I got to go to that." Yeah. I have no idea what to expect out of the Superman Museum, but that's on the tour. Um, and uh, so I, I take the ride over from Cape Girardeau to Metropolis, which is probably 90 minutes. Again, I think that's why I damaged my fingers that morning. But um, I show up at the at the Superman Museum, and it is kitschy and beautiful. And um, the guy, uh, Jim Hambrick, is the, the the founder and curator of the Superman Museum. And and um, I talk about this a little bit in the book. You know, I like antiquing. And a lot of small towns will have these antique malls where it's just – you know, different vendors will have a stall and they'll put out you know, costume jewelry and pocket knives and old board games and whatnot. And uh, sometimes you'll find one that is very clearly a guy's stall. You know, he'll have wind-up toys, G.I. Joe stuff, maybe some old Playboys in there, uh, you know, like a Wheaties box, commemorative Brett Favre Wheaties box and this sort of stuff. So Superman Museum is that stall over and over again all by the same guy. And I had no idea just the pure amount of Superman stuff. And uh, I kind of had to rush through there, but I really enjoyed the Superman Museum. And one thing that was interesting was coming into that town, Metropolis, you know, the name, picturing this New York City skyline. Metropolis is a town of like 10,000. And you come into town, at least the, the side that I came in, there, there's riverboat gaming there, so they're doing a little bit better. Um, but the, the side of town I came in, there's a sign, Welcome to Metropolis. And they've got this sort of a wooden cutout of Superman, you know, flying towards you as, as you're coming into town. And they've got the, the signs at the bottom of it, you know, like the Kiwanis and mm -hmm. you know, the Knights of Columbus or whatever. Right. But it, there's this big sign, Welcome to Metropolis. And I'm not kidding you, Ted. It's missing the O. So it's like, Welcome to Metropolis. Um, and, and, and so I took this, I took a picture of this sign, Welcome to Metropolis, is missing the O. 
And uh, I wanted that to be the cover of the book. So that's where the title came from. But then I came up with a better cover and, and that picture didn't work really well because it was in landscape. Um, right. But uh, yeah, I enjoyed the trip to the museum. <laughs> Did you know that place even existed before you set off? Not the week before I visited. No. No. I had no idea it existed. So um, I didn't know half these places existed before, I, before, you know, I knew it existed before I went to it, but not, I didn't know about it two weeks before I was there. So when your sister said, hey, I found this place called Metropolis, what was your response? I'm going. <laughs> you know, that was, I had three or four spots on the river that I was going to go. And, and that was one of them. And okay. Okay. So I said, I, I, I think I damaged my fingers riding over from Cape Girardeau yeah, yes. to Metropolis. I think, I think I can nail it down to that time. The reason I was so hell bent to get to Metropolis, I wanted to be there when the museum opened. I was oh. jazzed to get in there. Um, and, uh, yeah. Well. well, tell us about your accommodations along the way. What was it? Hotels and camping or what, what, what did you do? When I started off, I don't, you know, I, I make a middle-class living, but I'm not a rich guy, uh, you know, and, and I haven't, haven't made any money off the riding. So you know, taking off on a, on a week-long motorcycle trip, you know, budget is a factor, right? Sure. And I had to buy a helmet. Um, I, my old helmet just frankly wasn't sufficient to ride this kind of ride. It was 20 years old. I don't know what its rating was. It had been dropped 100 times. I don't think it had a visor. <laughs> uh, so I spent like yeah. 350 bucks on this Nolan helmet. I, I bought this stupid ass tent off of uh, Amazon for a couple hundred bucks. You know, so costs are mounting. I bought this bear spray that I didn't use. Um, I, I bought an armored shirt that I had to return because it didn't look right. So, you know, I, I was I was laying out cash faster than I expected before I even left. So I decided I was going to save uh, money by camping wherever possible. So uh, the first like five or six days I was supposed to camp. The first day I was too cold, threw in the towel, didn't camp. Um, then I had a couple of luxury hotels planned further down the river. I figured, you know, by that time you're going to start being tired of, of sleeping on the ground. Go ahead. Defined luxury hotel. All right. So, well, this is good. <laughs> uh, okay. So in Nashville, I stayed in this hotel. It's on Mud Island. Um, the name of it slips my mind, but this hotel is ranked like I don't know. I, I talk about it in the book. It's got all these accolades. It's like top 20 this, top five that. You know, it's on all these lists. You go in. Um, it's like a, you know, it's like a mini mansion. But but everything in there has got some kind of history. The floor is recovered from this. The fireplace is recovered from that. You go in your, your room and it's a big four-poster bed with like an embroidered, uh, you know, doilies and shit in there. Um, and I'm a guy who was sleeping on the ground the day before, you know. I, I come in, I'm covered with road grime. And there's, there's, there's like... 70 year old people taking their their 50th anniversary weekend staying in this place and i'm rolling in with my uh, my grubby doc martens but um like i stayed in that place the final night in new orleans i stayed in this kind of a chic uh boutique style hotel i stayed in a place in nashville called aloft which i guess is a national chain but it was news to me um and, and that was a cool hotel with a lot of original art um but when i okay so i had those three hotels i i i had a really bad experience in um in hell where I was, I was in the Mississippi Delta and I, I, I almost got mugged by a crackhead and I was supposed to, I was supposed to camp that night, but I couldn't do it. I, I was like, no, I gotta, I gotta have a bed. I said, fuck this. So, um, that night I stayed in a, in a holiday Inn express and, uh, and then one night coming right out of Minnesota, I was too cold. So I stayed in this, uh, this place called the Stony Creek Inn. So I never camped as much as I was supposed to. 
Uh, I think I was actually, you know, maybe five nights in a hotel, four nights on the ground. Um, but I had intended to camp a lot. Yeah. And I, you know, I did so little that I should have just saved the money on that tent. Well, the nights that you did camp, was it yeah. really cold? It was horrendous. And then I'd wake up in the morning. Okay, so you just reminded me of all this funny stuff. So I, I bought, the, I went to REI and I bought, okay, because stupid camping. Um, I bought like a yoga mat. It's supposed to be a mattress, right? You, you put it in your tent. You're going to lay on this thing on the ground. Everything I bought, I was trying to go small so it would fit on the bike. So I'm on this wafer-thin yoga mat for a mattress inside my tent. I've got a, an inflatable pillow like the size of a cigar box, which is just god-awful. And I've got this Sub-Zero sleeping bag, but I'm afraid to zip it all the way up because I'm a little claustrophobic. So every night I just go to bed in my clothes with like my top half sticking out of the sleeping bag on my yoga mat with my one-man tent. And I'll tell you something about KOI campgrounds uh, in the middle of November during a cold snap. They're unoccupied. Um, I was a lonely bastard in these campgrounds. <laughs> uh, I was the only guy... Uh, one night, another night, there was like one other couple there in an RV and you know, I, I never crossed paths with them. But, uh, no camping was a bitch. Um, I peed on myself one night mistakenly. <laughs> that was not alcohol related. Um, and then, uh, that same, okay. So that same night that I peed on myself, um, <laughs> do I, I, I got to ask to, you like, about that? My, yeah, <laughs> sure. I, okay, I, I got up to launder my clothes at like five in the morning after I'd pissed myself. And, uh, I come back to the tent because uh, it wasn't even fastened down, right? Because my body weight is supposed to hold it in place. And uh, I come back and it had blown over. You know, my, my stuff's all over the ground. I mean, it was uh, it was mayhem from start to finish this trip. And, uh, okay, how did I pee on myself? Yeah, it's up to you. You don't have to tell us if you don't want. No, I don't mind. <laughs> so I'm riding all day. And I'm concerned that I'm going to get dehydrated because I'm not drinking. You're sitting in a saddle for, you know, hundreds of miles at a time. You stop. You have a little lunch. You have a little breakfast. And so I just thought, you know, so, so I'm physically healthy riding this ride. I should stay hydrated. So this night I stopped and I had bought myself at a gas station, two of these big jugs of Powerade Zero. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Windex. It's blue, uh, but it tastes good. And I'm going to drink, I'm going to drink like two liters of Powerade Zero to make sure that like I'm not dehydrating. This is my idea of like keeping healthy on the ride. Right. Don't don't buy insulated (laughs) socks or gloves, but drink two liters of Powerade Zero. So I down all this Powerade before I go to bed, and and this is a wide mouth bottle. So I take an empty Powerade Zero bottle with me in the tent because it's cold, and I figure, you know, I got to pee in the middle of the night. I'll use this stupid bottle. So I go to sleep. I make it most of the way through the night. I wake up. You know, the the, the wind is just roaring and, 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 you know, tearing at that tent flap, and, and I know it's like, 42 degrees outside and windy and I, I, you know, whatever little bit of warmth I have, I don't want to lose. And I brought this empty bottle in. So who am I kidding? I already had a game plan, right? So <laughs> I decided I'm going to pee in this bottle. I'm in my pants, in my sleeping bag. So, you know, going purely by feel, I think I got everything set up right. And I start to pee. And like almost immediately, like there's this hot, wet, I haven't peed on myself since I'm two years old, you know, uh, almost immediately. There's just a hot wetness in my crotch. And I was like, oh, God, no. And then my fear is that I've got my sleeping bag and everything. Right. So it's, it's like 40 degrees. I've just pissed myself. I had washed all my clothes the night before. Uh, I didn't have I didn't have laundry detergent. I was using head and shoulders to wash my clothes. Um, so now your audience knows I suffered dandruff as well. Um, but uh, so I suffered dandruff and I pissed myself. Um 
And so I had, to, I had to get up then at like five o'clock in the morning and wash everything oh. uh, before I could hit the road again. So camping was not what I what I thought it might have been. Wow. How about your meals? How 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 did that work out for you? Um, sorry, I was taking a drink there. Um, meals. Um, my goal when I left, you know, I, I had all these plans when I left. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, Mike Tyson said everybody everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face, right? <laughs> so I. I leave home and I said, I'm not going to eat in any chain restaurants. I'm going to really experience the mom and pop flavor yeah, yeah. of America as I go down this road. The first night I ate at Texas Roadhouse. Um, wow. okay. So I just, I just wanted something familiar. And um, so a lot of times during the day, uh, I, I didn't, I occasionally stopped for lunch, but more often because I started to be afraid that I wasn't going to make my mileage goals during the day. Um, I started doing like a lot of uh, king size Snicker bars and Red Bull right right through the visor of my helmet. I nice wouldn't even take healthy. my helmet. Off. I, nice and healthy. Yeah, I stand there next to the pump, uh, drinking a Red Bull and, and eating a Snickers, and then off I would go. Um, I ate peanut butter off my finger one morning after after leaving the Holiday Inn, um, but I, I did have some good food. Um, probably the best meal I had, um, and it wasn't just the best meal of that ride. It was one of the best meals of my life. I was in Memphis. And um, it was like five o'clock in the evening when I made it over to Beale Street. And I went in this bar and I was I was hungry. I sat down. I had a pint of beer. I ordered some ribs. I figured I'm in Memphis. Get the ribs. They were mediocre. I mean, they, they were they weren't anything to write home about. And but I'd ate them. I, I was hungry, so I tore through them. And then I was I was almost sad when I finished. I mean, like I just ate this plate of ribs that weren't all that good. Here I am in Memphis. Is one chance to eat good for you know at least this meal and, and you know who knows maybe for two days after. So I felt like I had wasted my dinner and ribs that weren't any good. And so the bartender comes over and she says, uh, you know, how was your meal? And I said, ah, you know, it, it was good. Uh, I said, I'm, I'm kind of bummed out, though, because now you know, I'm full. and I'm not going to be able to taste anything else on Beale Street. And she said, you, you've got to. And she was friends with the gal at the restaurant across the street, which was Miss Polly's Soul Food Cafe. And so she got on the phone to her friend across the street at Miss Polly's. And said, you know, I'm sending this guy over. We're going to hook him up with uh, chicken and waffles. And she walked me across the street and and delivered me to her friend at Miss Polly's. And I had, uh, they made me a half order because, you know, I'd already said I was full. They made me a half order. Half order's not on the menu. They were just being kind. And they didn't charge me for it. They gave me chicken and waffles, which was out of this world good. The chicken was moist. The, 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 the coating was, you know, just seasoned beautifully. The, the waffle was fluffy and malty, and the syrup was was warm, and there was butter. But they, I had to have greens. You got to try collard greens. That's that's the trade. And my whole adult life, I'm not a vegetable guy, right? right. And I've got so I got this beautiful looking chicken waffles, and next to it is this little like a little ramekin of of collard greens. And you know, I did my thing. Went in Rome, so I took a big bite of these collard greens, which I I did not like. The flavor wasn't bad, but the texture wasn't for me. And uh, there's this white kid in a in a jersey sitting down the bar, like two places from me and Miss Polly's, and he goes, "It's okay, dude. I don't like him either." Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that was probably the best the best meal I had on the trip, and 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 I did have some good food. You know, I, I joke about the Snickers and the Red Bull, but I, you know, I I'm a 215. I didn't miss I didn't miss too much. <laughs> but I did get the impression that the further south you went, the food yeah. and the hospitality got better. Yeah, it really did. Um, and in New Orleans, you know, New Orleans is, uh, you know, that's an eating and a drinking town. I had this yeah. big seafood platter down there, all this, you know, I tried stuff that I probably wouldn't have tried at home and, uh, and drinking. I tried absinthe for the first time in New Orleans Yeah. and then, 
you know, the, the you know final meal of my trip really uh, was beignets uh, right down there at Cafe Du Monde. I had uh, you know beignets and black coffee for my last meal of the trip. And and I don't know if you've been to Cafe Du Monde, but you can't, you can't beat that. So these beignets, they're these little puff donuts, uh, and then they cover them with powdered sugar. I mean, it just heaped on there, and they serve them to you piping hot. And you'll make the mistake of breathing in sometimes when you get one close to your mouth and you breathe in the powdered sugar, you're fucked. Um, but uh, but no, the beignets were awesome, and and that was that was the last that was the last road meal of the trip was the beignets and black coffee. So, wow. Yeah, I did. I did you get mom and pop Mexican joints and whatnot, so it was good. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the bike a little bit. Uh, how did it yeah. perform for you for the whole trip? I know you okay. did. I know you did have so, one little problem with it. Yeah, you know, and I'm grateful in retrospect. Uh, I'm grateful for the weather because if I had ridden down the road and the weather had been mild, where would the story have been? Um, if I'd ridden down the road and the motorcycle wouldn't have uh, given me trouble, what would there have been for a story? It would just be a travel log, you know, like where to where to eat and drink and sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but I faced some challenges. I'm not a mechanical guy. I have a little bit of aptitude. Like I said, I, I work in the trades. Um, but, but I'm, I'm not a mechanic. I couldn't, I couldn't rebuild the car. You know, if something goes wrong on my bike on the road, you know, I, I, you know, I can change a tire on my car. I can change my own oil. Um, but beyond that, I'm, I'm pretty useless and I didn't have any kind of repair kit or anything with me. So I, I was counting on the Kawasaki to work right, and right. I started down the river and it, it, I'd, I'd had a hiccup at Sturgis a few months before. And then it repeated itself a few weeks before I left. The the Kawasaki has this, um, it's K-I-P-A-S-S. I say it, Key Pass. The guy who narrated my book says Kai Pass. I don't know which one of us is right. Yeah. Um, it's got this, it's got this electronic key. So there's there's no actual key. It's a fob. And the bike would reject my fob. No good reason. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, try being you know, eight states down the Mississippi River and your motorcycle won't start. Um, and, and an odd thing with this fob problem was it would not only sometimes refuse to start, but it would stop while you're riding it. it. It would decide that it had been stolen and shut itself off. That didn't happen to me while I was on the river, but it happened to me a couple of weeks before. And I had looked on YouTube and the solution that somebody had come up with that was working for them was to open up part of the fairing, get down to this wiring harness, disconnect it wait for like a minute for the computer to reset and then plug it back in. And you kind of make the bike's computer do a, like a hard reboot. So for the last two or three days on the trip, I could not count on the bike to reliably start or run. Um, I, I took to, once I got it started in the morning, I would leave it run all day until I stopped for the night. And then I would hope that it would start again the next morning. And so I was fighting that. I, I didn't know if, if it would immobilize itself permanently and I would have to have it, you know, hauled home. I considered finding a place to trade it in, get something else entirely. You know, I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, I just nursed it down the river. And that became a part of the story, too, was I, I just couldn't count on that motorcycle the last couple of days. Wow. Now, the funny thing about that, this stupid Kai Pass problem that haunted me on the river, um, once the bike was shipped home, it never did it again. Hasn't done it since. Really? I, I have not had problem one with this Kai Pass after it kicked my ass for three days on the Great River Road. Did you take it to a Cowie dealer and ask him to look at it for you? I have a theory. Okay. Um, I had the battery replaced, and they said that one of my uh, one of the wires, you know, the, the runs over to the terminal, was was pretty significantly frayed, and they replaced that wire. 
And I think that this problem that I was blaming on, on the KeePass system might have been something that was just an electrical short caused by that, that battery wiring. But, you know, with an electrical problem, they're so difficult to chase. Who oh, knows sure. what it is? You know, yeah. You're glad it stops, but, you know, chasing those things down is tough. So it's quite possible that all those times that you were constantly disconnecting and harness and putting it back together, that maybe something might have finally just shorted out completely and just died. Yeah. And now it, didn't, doesn't, it doesn't matter anymore. Who knows? Who knows? It's, right. It's entirely, it's entirely possible. And I also lost one of those like $200 keys. I had two. I left with two, came home with one. So uh, you want to see a paranoid guy. Yeah. That's, that's me in the morning looking for that Kypass key, uh, you know, in, in Mississippi. Wow. Yeah, that's not good. Let's uh, talk about when you got the New Orleans. Uh, so, so, yeah. not, so now you arrived in New Orleans. Are you sad it's over? Um, I, I was, yes. Um. You know, because when you're you're on a ride, and, and and I guess it's true on any road trip, whether you're with somebody or not. But on a solo ride, um, you know, I've got a business, I've got a, a, a daughter, I've got responsibilities, like we all do. You know, the the bills come in the mail every month, and um, when you take off for a week and you're just riding, you know, you, you don't think about your bills or grubs eating your lawn or or, or <laughs> <laughs> any of the stuff with work uh i'm focused on the kai pass i'm focused on making it to the next town i'm wondering where i'm gonna sleep that night i'm listening to you know i enjoyed so much road music road trip yeah. music um yeah. I- i'm having conversations with people i meet you know i'm eating restaurant i grew up poor i'm eating restaurant food you know every night of the week uh so you know that trip the freedom you feel and the sense of uh, adventure and i don't know what's going to be around the next corner i don't know where i'm stopping and 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 to give up that freedom and to go back on the treadmill of daily life with bills and work and 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 you and you love you love your family you love your friends, um, but you got to say goodbye to that freedom you had and you can't you can't do that forever you can't I, I mean I guess some people get take it further than I do but you know I can't just disconnect from life and ride my motorcycle from now on I have to go home sometime yeah. and when you get home. There, there's 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 a trade off because you get home and then you're with people who love you and you got your own warm bed and you don't have to worry about starting that damn machine. Yeah. Uh, but I, I it, it was bittersweet. It was bittersweet when sure. I sure. I mean because I know for myself when that happens, it's over. You know, melancholy just sweeps right over you very yeah. quickly. You know, and it. And I get it. I totally get it. I tell you what was funny there too is um, you know I I, I started off talking about I, I bought this airline ticket. I had a first-class Delta ticket from New Orleans back home. Um, then I, I had a shipper bring the bike back. Um, but I get on this airplane. It's an Airbus. I'm on the aisle seat. And it essentially traces the Mississippi from New Orleans back to Minnesota. But it does it in a couple of hours. Yeah. So I'm looking out the window, you know, drinking orange juice, sitting there in a comfortable seat. And, and I knew it, it, it had taken me days. And, and this effort and this struggle and this fight and this elation and all of this to get there. You know, this this occupy this was my world for nine days. And I'm sitting in an airplane, somebody else is driving, and I'm looking down from thirty thousand feet watching that river roll past. And uh, it was surreal. Yeah, I can imagine. Now if the weather let, let's throw some let's throw, let's throw some situation out of here. If the weather was a little better and you didn't have that return ticket, do you think you would yeah. have just turned around and rode back home? I would have loved it. Yeah. I would have loved to have done that. And I think I would have had the time at that time of the year. Yeah. Um, and in fact, 
um, I was inspired after that trip to take more. And I started planning, you know, like I mentioned, I want to do this uh, key celebrity where I go from Florida up to New York. Yeah. And then the, the following year, um, I got super ambitious. You know, I say I learned, but maybe I didn't because I, <laughs> I, 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 I tried to do I tried to do Route 66 in California one in the same trip. I had a car, but but, you know, I should have learned from the motorcycle trip that there's only so many miles you can cover in a day. Yeah. And when I decided to do Route 66 in California one, I was hauling ass from start to finish to get it done in time. And then I took the Amtrak Empire Builder home. And, and that was uh, that was the opposite of that. Uh, that experience I had on that Delta Airbus riding the Amtrak, it was slow Joe Crow. I mean, it was so, so leisurely after, after hauling ass in a Camaro for 10 days or whatever it was, you know, <laughs> to sit on that train and just watch the world roll by and, and eat meals with old, old guys. But, um, yeah, yeah. So it, it was, I love the road. Yeah. Well, now you, you had quite an ordeal getting the bike back home. Uh, I did. Yeah. If, if you did this ride again, would you do that a little bit differently? I would. Um, I, I, again, this was probably part of my hurried planning, but I contacted her. I say I contacted. I think Shannon contacted. I'm not trying to throw her under the bus. I mean, I just, I think she did it because I was you know, out of town. But um, so we contacted this shipper and I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I gave him the hotel that I was going to be staying at in New Orleans. And they said, it's no problem. We'll pick up the bike there, deliver it home. It was going to be like $500. Great. I just, all I had to do was leave the keys with the concierge. No problem. Key with the concierge. But, um, when, when the time came for them to pick up the bike, you know, I get on the plane, I leave, I left the keys with the concierge, a day passes, two days pass, three days pass, and nobody's picked up that motorcycle. So I get in touch with this shipping company and, and it's, it's a younger guy who owns it, you know, he's, cause I, I ended up pissed off at him and going rounds, but, um, you know, he had promised more than he could deliver. They couldn't get a rig or couldn't contract a rig to get down into the French quarter to get my bike because the streets were too narrow. So, hmm. and I'd given them a deposit. Yeah. So there I'm flapping in the breeze. It's supposed to be like $35 a day or something to be parked in this garage. Right. And my motorcycle, it's wintertime in Minnesota. My motorcycle's sitting down in a garage in New Orleans. So after like a week of that guy lying, making promises that, that he didn't follow through on, um, I cut bait with him and I contacted uh, Hall Bikes. And Hall Bikes took care of business getting my bike home. Oh, good. Uh, they gave me a good rate. And they were honest with me right up front. They said, we can't get into the quarter. But, um, you know, if you work with the local Cowie dealer, they probably got somebody. So I worked with this uh, Hall's Motorsport yeah. uh, right out of uh, New Orleans there. I called up, talked to the receptionist right away. So helpful. And they had a towing company they used. So I call this towing company. The guy answers the phone. I can barely understand him. His Cajun accent is so thick. I'm basically just saying, yes, sir, whatever whatever he says. Just, I need this motorcycle. <laughs> and uh, so this this independent towing company, I think it was B&N, uh, goes down and gets my motorcycle and takes it to Hall's Motorsport. And then uh, Hall Bikes brought it home to me. But I got to say, this this tow truck driver who I could barely understand, he was just one in a long chain of people who stuck their neck out for me, you know, because – when he called me, you know, I gave him my, my American Express to pay him over the phone. He tells me, he didn't have to tell me this. He said that when he and his uh, assistant were, were putting the bike up on you know, whatever it was that they used to haul it, that it sort of tipped. It didn't do any damage to the bike, but he was afraid that, you know, maybe oil had gotten up in the cylinders or anything and he, or something. And he wanted me to know that it shouldn't be started for like 24 hours. Oh, that was nice. So he's, yeah. he's, he's just cluing me into this, you yeah. know, and, and it's just, and he was so nice and so accommodating 
Um, it, you know, I'd, I'd had that bike floundering in that hotel parking lot for like nine days and he went and got it immediately. Uh, once I contacted him, I mean, I think it was a matter of a few hours later, he had that bike out of there and he charged me to like $120 or something. Oh, I mean, it was, really? it was nominal. He, he could have murdered me. He could, he could have took me to the cleaners. You know, I'm States away. I'm yeah, helpless. Yeah, yeah. And he gave me a good rate and, and took care of my bike. Right. And then the people at the hotel, La, Mer- La Meridian there in New Orleans, they didn't charge me for the parking. They said, Hey, you're oh, a guest of the hotel and, and you were in a bind. So it's just all the way down the river, people. Oh, that's so nice. fantastic. Now, it, would you do that ride again if it was like, you know, a little warmer out? Would you replan everything or think it through a little further? No, no, not at all. Oh, <laughs> uh, I didn't. I didn't plan Route 66. But I, t- I tell you what, I would. What I would plan is this. Um, I don't think I'd plan the route. Uh, I kind of know the river. I'd, I'd maybe try to run the other side of it. Sure. You know, from memory. Um, I'd be interested in, in tackling a new ride, you know, taking, uh, you know, like I say, the East Coast I haven't ridden. And I understand that's a whole other ball of yarn, but um, or, or Highway 50 or, or through uh, like Texas, um, you know, so I'd like to maybe see different scenery. But and, and I don't think I would necessarily plan the route any better. But what I would plan would be um, like we talked about, like gear. Yeah, I would make sure that I had the right yeah. gear. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would make sure that that 100% my motorcycle was in good health um, before I left, you know, because right. I, I kind of knew about this mechanical problem before I left. I just hoped it wouldn't crop up. You know, <laughs> you shouldn't take off on a, on a trip with hoping something won't happen. Right. That's not how right. and conducts business. It'll be fine. Um, <laughs> right. But yeah, now I have appropriate riding boots. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I would go out with, with the proper gear. Um, I, I'd do those things. And, and you know what? Um, as much as I enjoyed a solo trip, it's probably a good idea to, to ride uh, with a partner or with a group uh, who can help you out when things come up. So, you know, just a little bit of writer wisdom there, maybe. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, let's talk about some stats. Uh, yeah. So how long did it take? It was nine days, you said, right? Was that nine yeah. days from the moment you left the driveway to the moment you pulled into the hotel? Yeah, I left. Um, okay, so I left on a Wednesday morning. And I returned home on a Friday afternoon. Uh, so I think it was it was nine days. So I, I rode out of my driveway like 11 o'clock in the morning. I finished up in New Orleans on that Thursday night. Uh, woke up there, you know, took a cab to the airport. So it was a Wednesday to Friday. Yeah. And then um, that following Saturday was my birthday. So that oh, was nice. okay. There but you yeah, go. Nine days, 2,500 miles, 10 states. I probably spent, you know, if somebody was looking to do what I did, I probably spent all in grand I mean, it doesn't cost a lot when you're by yourself and yeah you yeah yeah that. uh so it's doable how was the uh the cowie on gas not bad it's um really? I, I don't know it's a motorcycle how bad can it be <laughs> uh you know i'm, I'm probably getting mid-20s and mid-20s I, I'm, I'm that's gentle. all oh I, I don't know see i just spit something out is, is that good okay mid-40s all i right, don't that, know that, see that i'll, I'll go with you me just spitting something out you're asking okay. a question like, oh, i don't know um, but i tell you what i'm i'm a i'm a gentle rider i'm, I'm a casual rider i'm not super aggressive yeah you know i talk yeah. about not having gear but but I, I ride like a guy who doesn't have gear I, you know i like to run 50 60 miles an hour i, I don't get too deep in the corners right. I, I you know I popped a wheelie twice by accident and haven't done it since. Um, so, you know, I, I'm pretty gentle on the equipment. Yeah. Um, so. Well, let's talk about your daily mileage. What, what, yeah. what daily mileage did you want to do versus what daily mileage you actually did? Um, I thought, based on MapQuest, 
that I was going to be doing like 175, 185 miles a day. Really? That's all. Uh, wow. Yeah. And so then I figured like I'm going to have time in the afternoon and, and see tourist sites or sleep. In, you know, I really pictured this being a, you know, like a, a gentleman's pace. I'm going to, you know, stop and paint the landscape, right? Um, yeah, right. In reality, in reality, and this isn't going to sound to you like that much more, but in reality, I was doing like 250 miles a day and, and you, know, you do a little back, you do a little backtracks and stuff. And, um, and I took literally hundreds and hundreds of photos. Yeah. So I would, I would pass something that caught my eye. I'd spin the bike around. I'd stop, I'd get off. I'd try to frame a shot. Um, so I spent a lot of time that really cut into my average yeah. time, but I, I love taking pictures of stuff. And that was part of the trip. And if I saw a little touristy thing, I would, in or, or a nice vista I, you know I, I'd ride at 60 miles an hour for 20 minutes and I'd stop for five you know yeah. um, but I, I, in the end I did about 225 250 a day I think on my my, my longest day I rode 400 yeah. uh, which wow. yeah that, that tired me out I, you know I, I, I've I've talked I, I recently ended up in a conversation with a guy who's going to try and set the world's record in New York to LA and he rides with this like catheter and he doesn't stop but he's got you know he's got a fuel cell and I was like Dude, you know, two, 250 miles a day kicks my ass. That's all I got. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so, and it, it's probably my bike. Frankly, I don't think the Cowie is as comfortable uh, as a as a nice cruiser. Yeah. Um, but hey, it is what it is. Um, time wise, hours per day. How how many hours did you ride per day? I mean, as far as it goes for moment, okay. the moment you got up, got on the bike, to the moment you finally got off at the end of the day. Um, here's the thing too. This is what I was fighting. I would get so cold yeah. during the day that it was hard to blast myself out of bed in the morning because the idea of leaving the warmth of the bed and I would get into these hotel rooms and I would crank the heat up as high as it would go. Yeah. So, you know, by, by five, six, seven in the morning, I'm sweating on top of the covers. The room's like 80 degrees. Um, and I just didn't want to leave the room cause I knew that I'm going to, I'm going to be cold in the, within 30, 40 minutes, um, deeply, severely like hypothermic cold. So I was always reluctant to leave. I would generally get out about eight o'clock in the morning. I'd fuel up. I'd, I'd grab myself some breakfast. So you know, I was like an eight, eight or nine o'clock, really true rollout time. Yeah. And then darkness was my my signal to stop. So right. you know, I, I was stopping at that time of year. What does that put you like five o'clock at night or something? Yeah. So I, it was a nine to five gig. Wow, nice. That's great. Wow, holy crap, that's 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 good riding day. Um, What's his name? Uh, Daniel McCauley narrated this for you. He, great job. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel like, um, okay, I have to do a shameless plug here. It's The book is available on Amazon.com and Audible.com and iTunes. Um, here's the deal with, with Dan. Um, Dan, was a, he's a radio guy. He's a professional voice actor. He's got uh, several audio books out there. And I found him on Audible ACX. Yes. Uh, I put, I'm familiar, I, very familiar I, I, I with it. A, yeah, I put a little sample up and, uh, I don't know, 20, 30 people at, at whatever price rate I was offering uh, auditioned. And and the scene that I had put, Dan read it. He nailed it. Like, I listened to it several times in a row. I was like, that's the guy. I can quit looking. Dan nailed it. Um, it he, he caught the flavor of this particular scene that I'd put up. And then, you know, we, we signed a contract and he starts recording. I was a nightmare to Dan. I've apologized to Dan so many times. And, and I, hopefully he'll listen to the podcast and hear me apologize again. 
So he turned in like chapter one and I immediately started nitpicking his performance, you know, because his, his cadence is a little different than mine. He hits the punchlines a little different. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't necessarily pronounce things the way that I pronounce them. And so I was like the world's like, like shittiest little dictator director to this great <laughs> professional radio guy. And uh, after about two days of it, he sent me an email that um, he, he was polite, but I got the feeling like I needed to back off. Um, and so then I, then I let Dan do his thing and yeah. he did a great job. And he did. Frankly, his version of my book, I like better than my version of my book. I, I've, I've listened to that audiobook several times. I haven't gone back and read my print version. He did a really, really uh, good job with it. He's easy to listen to. Yeah, it was great. It was actually really good. Uh, how can people learn more about you and what you're up to? Um, that's a good question. I'm on Twitter at Coke author. Um, anybody can feel free to, to email me. It's Christopher Coke at live.com. I'm on Facebook, uh, also at Coke author and Christopher Coke. Uh, the book is available on audible.com and, uh, iTunes. It's also available, uh, for, uh, you can get the printed copy or the Kindle copy, uh, on Amazon. And, uh, it's a, it's a self-published book. You know, it's not coming out of New York. This was a labor of love. I think it's I think it's extremely well edited, uh, considering, and I would be grateful for every sale I make. Uh, um, probably the most gratifying thing for me out of writing this is the thought that somebody I've never met and never will meet uh, gets to go on that ride with me. Yes, and I've gotten some feedback, you know, where guys say that they that they've read it and enjoyed it, and and that just makes me feel really really good that I was able to help somebody enjoy their vacation better or something. Well, I listened to it twice, so that must give you a clue <laughs> as to how much I enjoyed yeah. it. Any words of advice to riders who might consider riding the Great River Road? Do it. Um, that would be my first piece of it. Any of these trips, and, I, and this was me in the beginning, right? Um, I'm sitting across this desk, and I'm not sure whether to go. And I thought of putting it off till spring because I said, well, in the spring, I'll have more time to plan. Like you said, the weather I, I was anticipating will be better. Um, but, but I had already put it off. You know, we, we take so many things in our life and we say, oh, well, I'll get to that when I've got a little bit more money or I'll get to that when things aren't so crazy at work or when the kids graduate school, I'll get to it. And I called it the dusty tarp of someday. You know, you you take, you know, you maybe got an old motorcycle in the garage. You haven't ridden for a while. It's got a dusty tarp over it. You say, well, someday I'm going to get that thing running for me. Taking this trip was someday. And, and when I decided on that Thursday afternoon, I was going to leave the next Wednesday, Sunday came rushing or someday came rushing up at me. Right. And, and that's again, where I have to thank my sister, Shannon, who said to me, do it. And and she was the one who pulled up that Delta website and and had found that ticket for me. And and she was the one that clicked the button and and kicked me out of the nest and made me do something that I might've put off. It it might still be an idea uh, if I hadn't done it. So my advice to anybody considering a trip down the Great River Road or anywhere else, go, you know, get out there and, and just live and be and do. All right. Chris, well, I want to thank you very much for joining me here on a podcast. Absolute pleasure to speak with you and get some more detail into this wonderful trip you took. I guarantee you I will listen to that book again. But thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. All right. Take care now. Hey, appreciate it, Ted. Thanks for joining me and Chris here on the podcast and where we talked about Welcome to Metropolis, the book that Chris had authored. Wonderful book. So to learn more about this, you can go to 
You can go to Amazon or you can go to audible.com and check out this book. Links will be in the show notes and there will be a direct link to Chris's book uh, in the show notes and, of course, also on the website. Don't forget to check out our fellow podcasters, YouTubers, bloggers, and vloggers out there whose links you will find on our links page. All of these media outlets and many more out there do great things to promote and encourage our sport. So, thanks for listening to this episode 238. And from Tim, Buck to Krista Joker, Justin Shoes, and of course me, Ted Longway, your host. Thanks for listening to the Motorcycle Men Podcast, where we say stupid crap so you don't have to. Enjoy your ride, kids, and be safe.